1: Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com.
2: Hey Alarmy! before we get started, we wanted to make sure you heard the big news. The Alarmist has joined Patreon. Patreon subscribers will get access to our content ad free, as well as our aftermath post interview discussion and final verdict. We'll also be putting out additional bonus episodes and other fun stuff. Here's a preview of Guest Alarmist, where I step aside and let a guest walk us through a personal tragedy, and together the alarmist crew figures out who's to blame. This month on Guest Alarmist, Georgia Mishak discusses the impeachment of President Georgia. This this is about 20 years in the making. I have been looking for <laughs> the answer to this. Thousands of dollars spent in therapy. Oh, wow. But, <laughs> but today, who knew? All I needed was a, was in, a podcast. A podcast and a platform. The... <laughs> yeah. Yeah, don't, yeah. don't start with therapy. <laughs> start, start, podcast. start with a podcast. Yeah. podcast. Yes, yes. Okay. Go to patreon.com slash the alarmist and subscribe today. Now, on to our episode. Just a note about this interview, our connection with our guests was not optimal, so there are some technical quirks throughout the interview. Thanks for bearing with us. Each week, we decide who's to blame for a historical tragedy. And each week, you tell us if we got it right. My name is Rebecca Delgado-Smith, and this is The Aftermath. Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of The Aftermath. Today, we're speaking with guest expert, Dr. Nicholas Morton. Nick is a historian at Nottingham Trent University and the author of The Mongol Storm, Making and Breaking Empires in the Medieval Near East. Let's hear what he has to say about the reign of Chinggis Khan. Hi, Nick. Thank you so much for joining us today.
3: Thank you for having me on the show.
2: So... Can you start off by giving us some backstory on the Mongolian way of life in the 12th century when Chinggis Khan or Temujin was born? What, how, how was the Mongolian tribe run or governed?
3: Sure. So, in the we're looking really at the area here to the north of China. It's got the Gobi Desert to the su- southwest, and to the north is the thick forest or thick forests of Siberia, and in between those two areas, you have large areas of steppe countries and lots of grassland. It's not particularly um, high rainfall, and there are mountains, but there are large areas of grazing. And this is the area we're looking at when it comes to the Mongols. And the Mongols themselves, or the Mowals, are just one group of people amongst a whole range of different communities across the Mongolia region. Many of them are nomadic, like the Mongols themselves, but you also further north in the forest belt, you have various forest peoples or peoples who live between the forest and the steppe. So it's not just a case of, of steppe nomads. It's a very sort of diverse area with lots of different types of peoples and the Mongols themselves are thought originally to have come from the Siberian forests. But for the Mongols, they live in a nomadic way of life, so they move from one area of grazing to another. And I think one of the things that makes the Mongol civilization so distinctive is that they are a wagon culture. And so the entire society moves on wagons. And When I say wagons, some of the smaller communities may have had sort of four or five or ten wagons, But for the really big ones, you're looking at tens of thousands of wagons, an entire landscape covered with wagons moving from winter to spring grazing grounds, bringing with them all their animals. And so the sheer spectacle of this must have been incredible for anyone witnessing it um, for the first time particularly.
2: I'd love to learn about Temujin's early years. Who were his parents? What was his childhood like?
3: So, yes, Temujin was born into very difficult circumstances. His people, the Mongol people, had been defeated for many years. They were in a fairly weakened position. And so he was brought up at a time when they're on the back foot. And uh, Temujin's parents, were, his father had originally um. A, Abducted um, his mother Hualun, who then and so this is this can happen in Mongol society that wives are or women are abducted and then become become wives and so these these are his parents and he's born and raised in this culture. It's in very difficult circumstances and his when he becomes old enough to marry, his father goes to um, arrange a marriage for Temujin, but actually on the way back from arranging that marriage his father encounters the Tata people who are a neighbouring and hostile people to the Mongols. And they. he doesn't realise who they are, but they show him hospitality. But what he doesn't know is that they poison him. And so eventually his father makes it back to the camp, but he's only got hours to live. As this sets up very much the next phase of Temujin's life, when he has to go forward into the world following the death of his father.
2: And how does his life change after the death of his father?
3: Sure. So his mother, Hoalun, is she's surrounded by followers and warriors and the various people of his particular community within the Mongol people. But with the death of his father, most of those followers go. And so Hoalun is left with her children and very few other sort of helpers or supporters, which means that she's extraordinarily vulnerable. And lots of other leading families are very aware of that vulnerability and try and take advantage of it. And it's not made any easier by the fact that Temujin himself and his siblings, there's quite a lot of rivalries and Temujin actually kills his own half brother. And so Hoalun, his mother must have had to deal with some incredibly difficult circumstances in these early years and ultimately this comes to a point where the entire family is attacked and temujin along with many of his family members is taken into is made a prisoner essentially and he's placed in a wooden device that's a little bit like a, a it's often compared to stocks so where stocks will like a wooden plank that fits over your legs so you can't move uh, he's placed in something like that but it's it goes around your neck and you it holds your hands a bit like handcuffs and he's forced to live in this device for ages until eventually he beats his god to death with it and manages to escape. But this is a very, very troubled um, you know, early, early years period where he's taken prisoner, he's forced to, ru- to run. And even before that, when he's living with his mother, she herself is having to deal with all sorts of crises, including those that he's causing himself.
2: Now, he eventually gets together with the girl that, he had a, an arranged marriage with uh, mm-hmm. who? Who? Who was his wife, and uh, what kind of relationship did they have? What? What was their story?
3: Sure. So, yeah, the, there is the arranged marriage, and then Temujin is taken um, prisoner. He manages to escape, and then he manages to um, to retake his wife. He manages to to win a battle and and, and take her back, and it, she joins the now. Narrative very much, uh, or he joins his narrative, I should say, very much as his power is rising. He's beginning to acquire followers. One of his earliest actions is to try and release her, and then obviously she can be with him. But later on, from from that point on re- onwards, really, um, the main role she plays is as um, his his head wife. He does have other wives later on in his life, but in that capacity as lead wife. She runs the camp for him and she runs the logistics of the entire encampment. So, as his Mongol empire grows, she's the one who's responsible for coordinating the tens of thousands of wagons, thousands of families, and the animals. It's her logistical role to provide for the camp. So, she's an enormously important figure within the household, as it were. Yes, uh, Temujin or later Chinggis Khan is um, the nominal head but she makes much of the practicalities happen. So she plays an enormously important role. But one question around her which has often lingered is that during the early years she was taken captive and when she was released she was found to be pregnant and a question mark hangs over whether the, her first firstborn son was in fact Chingiz Khan's son or was as, a result, was, was as a result of a rape during her captivity.
2: Wow. Now, who was Jamukha? How how did he and uh, Temujin uh, meet? And later, how did their relationship devolve?
3: Sure. So Jamukha is uh, Temujin's anda, which is a little bit like saying he's his blood brother. So they have this very, very close tie very early on. And for many years, they share an encampment. They live together and they fight together and They work together very closely, and for reasons that aren't quite clear, they part company and become rivals, and that rivalry turns into violence. And in the sort of mid to later parts of Temujin's life, Jamukha is actually one of his main opponents, and that only really comes to an end after many years of war, when eventually Jamukha's own commanders bring Jamukha into Chinggis Khan's uh, encampment. Chinggis Khan offers him life, but he chooses um, to die instead. So it's it's an incredible story of friendship, but ultimately of friendship broken and the conflict that evolves from that. Really.
2: And once once he is bestowed the title of Chinggis Khan, what is? his next move what what kind of changes does he implement into mongol life and and the way that the new nation is run
3: sure so um from a very early age as soon as he's got even the slightest bit of power um temujin's approach is to expand and conquer and he does that consistently there's never any real break that there's one period where he goes quiet for a bit and we're not quite sure what happened to him he may have been in exile in china but at all other times if he can he's expanding and that initially means expanding and conquering various neighboring peoples like the tartar people or the merkit people or the various other peoples in mongolia but then increasingly, when he takes on the title of chingwan in 1206 um he begins very much to conquer beyond mongolia and so it's during this period that he makes his most significant campaigns into northern China, as well as other neighboring civilizations around the Mongolia Depp region. And this is the origins of the massive expansion of the Mongol Empire in the later stages of Chinggis Khan's life.
2: And, and do we know what sets off this desire or or a need for expansion? um d- did he have interests in uniting mongolia and what is his plan in, in terms of conquering uh nearby dynasties
3: sure i mean he, he never shows any real sort of inclination of playing it any other way but I mean, his his the thing is that when he's the culture he's born into um it has all sorts of different grudges around it and rivalries. So his father had all sorts of enemies in the Mongolian regions. So the only real way that Temujin could ever achieve anything approaching security was to defeat each one of those rivals one after the other. And so in a sense, he has no alternative. He's going to have to expand. He's going to have to conquer. And there's just no alternative, really, because there is no other way for him to achieve security. But it seems that once he had done that, once he had defeated all his various rivals, he just keeps on going. And one of the ways he does that is that when he conquers a neighbouring people or community or nomadic group, what he will typically do is to kill all the elites in that family or that community. So all the leading, leading family members, they will all be killed, particularly the men. But then all the other families, the sort of rank and file families, if you like, they will then be enrolled into the Mongol people. They'll be told they now have to live, act and fight as the Mongol people. And this carries on throughout the Mongol Empire's history. It expands, it conquers. When it's defeated a civilization, the elites are often killed and the people are then enrolled into the Mongol Empire, which means that as the Mongol Empire grows, it gets bigger and more powerful as more and more people are forcibly enrolled into its ranks.
0: Hmm.
2: What made the Khan so good at uh, conquering? What, what were some of his personality traits that made him so successful? Do we even know?
3: So Chinggis Khan has a number of different strengths at various levels. He's coming from a nomadic society where children are born, from, born and raised in their early years to ride, shoot, and conduct large-scale hunts. And all of these are skills with military applications. And by contrast, agricultural societies, places like China or parts of the Muslim world or Western Christendom, most people are farmers. They don't have those kinds of military skills or skills that lend themselves naturally to warfare, but nomadic peoples do. And so there's there's an underlying cultural strength there when it comes to warfare. But then it's natural in such societies for very strong warriors to rise to the top. And Chinggis Khan certainly is a very effective warrior. And he has many skills. He's a very competent commander. He uses all sorts of ruses in battle, which seem to work. But again, that's all marks, that's all strengths. But it doesn't make him extraordinary. It doesn't explain why he could go so far beyond what other nomadic commanders managed to achieve. And the core qualities, I think, that set him apart is his astonishing determination. He never, ever gives up. He always comes back. He doesn't always win, but when he's defeated, he always comes back and carries on. Going His energy and his determination are incredible. Uh, another quality is his willingness to learn, because he realises, for example, when he's invading northern China, that he is very severely deficient in siege warfare, coming up against lots of big, heavily fortified cities and fortresses. And so as a result, he makes um, a very self-conscious decision to address that by making sure he recruits Chinese siege engineers. So with every society he he conquers, rather, as I've said, he enrolls those people that he wants into his forces, so his forces grow. But he's also learning. He's picking up new techniques and new ideas that can make him even more effective going forwards. Hmm.
2: Can you give us some background on the Khwarezmian Empire um, in the early 13th century? How established were they in terms of empires?
3: Sure. So about 200 years before the Mongol, the Mongol expansion, you have another big invasion out of the Central Asian steppe region by a group of peoples led by the Seljuk Turks. And they conquered much of the Middle East and Persia, what's in modern day Iran. And the empire fell apart over time. And the various governors of various different regions took control for themselves. Now, the Khwarazmians were governors in the Seljuk empire. And then when the empire collapsed, they created an empire for themselves. And the Khwarazmian empire embraced what today would be Iran-Persia, but also many peripheral regions, areas like Afghanistan, but also parts of Iraq and further north as well. And really the Khwarazmians are marginal to the Mongols for much of their existence until in 1218, the Mongols send a trading caravan to the border town of Otra, which is on the borders of the Khwarazmian Empire. And for reasons that aren't quite clear, the town governor, takes the mongol merchant's prisoner and then asks for instructions from the sultan about what to do with these mongol prisoners and the sultan gives very clear instructions and that is that they should all be killed so the governor goes about goes about conducting these instructions but he doesn't achieve it because a single merchant escapes and makes it back to chinggis khan at which point chinggis khan becomes aware of this and the reaction is immediate he attacks Atra, destroys the town, and uh, kills the town governor in Alchuk in a particularly brutal way by pouring metal down his throat. And then this then begins the invasions into the Khwarezmian Empire, which then become, or are a first step in, the invasions of the Middle East that will take place over later decades.
2: And he eventually uh, attacks uh, multiple cities, and these are, are ruthless um, sieges uh, uh, of these cities. Um, can you tell us uh, more about that?
3: In the northern borders of the Khwarezmian Empire are some really big cities, places like Bukhara and Samarkand. And even during Chinggis Khan's siege of Otrar, which I mentioned before, he's sending forces out to go and attack the other big border cities of the Khwarazmian Empire. And the way he does it is that when he conquers one city, he gets together as many people as he can find, uh, particularly able-bodied people, and then he drives or he drives them or or, uh, moves them all to the next city. And then having reached the next city, he then forces these people to run often unarmed against the ramparts of the opposing city. And of course, the defenders will shoot all these people down and fire their catapults at them, and the Mongols then wait for the defenders to run out of ammunition, killing all these people who have been driven against their ramparts. And when that happens, then the Mongols stage their main assault, which is an incredibly, incredibly brutal, but incredibly wow. effective way of conquering cities.
2: Um, and, and, and we had read about some cities where the entire population um, was killed after they were seized.
3: Yes um the mongols the mongols use of violence is not indiscriminate it's not that they just kill anyone because they want to there is a there is there is a structure to the way they do this sometimes when they conquer a city particularly a city that's resisted until the end they will kill everyone but even in the process they'll single out any artisans so people with high quality skills and they will be spared because the mongols can make use of them but those are normally cities that resist and as a rough sort of a rough rule if a city submits to the mongols well in advance so before the mongols have even arrived the mongols will often spare that city entirely if the mongols reach a city and then after a short period the city submits to the mongols then the population may well suffer but they some parts of it may be spared if a city has to be taken by storm then things can be a lot harsher for them. But it rather depends on the nature of the resistance. And the thinking behind that from the Mongol perspective is they feel they have a right to rule the entire planet. And this is something that they feel they have acquired spiritually from Tengri, the eternal sky. They have a mandate to rule all human civilization. And so civilizations that submit to them are deemed to have recognized this truth. And so they're on the right side of that equation. They've recognized something that is true and right and accurate. The Mongols want to encourage people to do that. So they will treat these people very positively. But, of course, if people resist the Mongol armies, mm. from the Mongols' perception, they're not just resisting the Mongol armies, they're resisting the truth on which these armies are marching. And so that things will go a lot more hard for them.
2: Um, reputation uh, spreading. How how did um, how did Chinggis Khan use this as a strategy in his uh, conquering?
3: Sure, I think the simple answer to that is is that news spreads very quickly. People begin to become aware that something is happening, and so to take a very early example, even as far back as 1218, when the Mongol armies are still hundreds of miles away from the Middle East, or certainly from Egypt, which is where I'm going with this story, um, there's a crusade going on in Egypt. The crusaders have arrived, they've invaded the north coast of Egypt. The Ayyubid dynasty, that Saladin's dynasty, is trying to resist it. And even during this crusade, hundreds of miles from the nearest Mongol forces, they hear reports of big wars being fought somewhere out to the east, now, at this time, they completely misinterpret what's going on, and the Crusading army thinks this these are the armies of a legendary emperor called Prester John, who, according to legend, will one day march out of the east with an army of monsters. yes, you did hear me right, um, mm. and assist Christendom. Now, of course, Prester John has not, nor does he exist, but nonetheless the wars of the Mongols are heard and rumoured as its work, and it reaches the Crusader camp. And that's what they think they're hearing. So the legend of what's going on spreads by word of mouth as merchants and refugees and travellers spread news of it. But, of course, by the process of whispers, it reaches uh, in a very sort of confused form. So it takes a bit of time for the various civilizations across Eurasia to get accurate information about what's going on. but the sheer scale of the conquest and the scale of the casualties of the conquest this does not pass unnoticed and news spreads fairly quickly
2: and he he just continues to take on territories how how large is the expansion by the end of his reign
3: sure so in fact um chinggis khan's life i mean he conquered a great deal he began the process of conquering areas and so He, by the time of his death, he controlled much of Central Asia, Mongolia, northern parts of northern and eastern parts of the Khwarazmian Empire, northern parts of China, among other various other other regions. But it's actually under his successors, the Mongol Empire becomes so much larger to include pretty much all the Central Asian steppe and then west all the way up to the borders of Western Christendom, to the borders of Poland and Hungary. In fact, in 1241, the Mongols invade Hungary and Poland and cause devastation in both areas, but they don't remain there. And it's under his heirs that they um, invade all the way into the Middle East, reaching as far as Damascus. And it's under his heirs that in the 1260s, they complete the conquest of China. And there are even attempts to push further to the Southeast into Southeast Asia. Although it's notable in Southeast Asia, like many other regions, the Mongols can expand fairly quickly where they can graze their animals but because that's the nature of their culture, but they really struggle to handle with, with handle the jungles of Southeast Asia or the deserts further south, or indeed the thick deciduous woodland of um, what's known Eastern Europe.
2: Hmm. So uh, climate and uh, topography, that, that eventually stops them, their expansion. <laughs>
3: It plays a role, absolutely. Uh, yeah. That's one of the factors. Another factor is that uh, Chinggis Khan has, has huge numbers of children, but he has only a small group of leading sons. And those sons are the inheritors of the imperial dynasty. Now, they, one of those sons then goes on to be the next um, Khan, but all the other sons, including, including the son who becomes, goes on to be the, the, the great, next great Khan, they're all given areas of jurisdiction within the Mongol Empire called Ulu. And the thing about these Ulu is, they do, is that over time, the various dynasties created by his sons, they begin to rule these areas as if they're their own private empires. And so fracture lines emerge, particularly in areas where there's contestation over who gets to control which bit of land for that particular family, which causes ultimately civil war in the Mongol Empire, which breaks out in a big way in the 1260s. And it's really then that the Mongol expansion begins to slow because the Mongols turn in on themselves and fight a series of big civil wars, which then slows the pace of their expansion and the remaining civilizations around their borders. Yes, it helps if they've got a landscape that's not hospitable to Mongol culture, but they can also harden up their defenses and gather allies and it becomes much harder for the Mongols to expand once they've lost the momentum of that conquest.
2: Wow! Now, what ultimately ha- is is the end of Chinggis Khan's reign? What, what, and and what is the reason for so much secrecy behind his death?
3: Sure, I mean Chinggis Khan's Khan's death. Um, took place several years after his invasions into the Khwarazmian Empire. After a brief pause, he then went to, to continue his wars in China. But the really big controversy and one of the most interesting features of the Mongol Empire and its culture, in my view, is the interregnums, the gaps between the great Khans, because Chinggis Khan dies but then after his death and then after the death of many other great Khans, you've got a period sometimes of many years until the next great Khan is chosen. And what's interesting is that in those periods, it's often, not always, but often the widow of the former great Khan who then controls the succession and looks after the empire until the next great Khan can be chosen.
2: Now, what what is the legacy um that you think he's left and and how has he been perceived how how has the way that he's perceived shifted throughout the ages
3: yes he's got a remarkable legacy um obviously in mongolia he's an incredibly important historic figure and the pope in his recent visit to mongolia made specific reference to Chinggis khan um, around the world, he's remembered in different ways. So, particularly in areas that were very hit were hit very hard by the Mongol invasions, he's naturally remembered as a very a very sort of brutal conqueror. And so in the Muslim world, he's often remembered, or this wasn't him, but it was the empire he created. Um his descendants brought about the sack of Baghdad in 1258, which was incredibly brutal. Um, He didn't do it himself, but often the Mongols are remembered for that brutality in later years. One of the interesting manifestations of the Mongol memory, though, is um, the Mongol society itself, it practiced a form of religious tolerance. And so all the various religions under Mongol rule, whether that's Buddhism or Islam or Christianity, they were treated on an equal level. And so some some people have claimed that what we're looking at here is a sort of early form of modern day religious tolerance. I've never really gone down that route too far myself because what the Mongols essentially want is that they perceive all religions around the world to have a certain degree of spiritual power. And what they want is for all the world's religions to use that spiritual power as they perceive it for um, the betterment of their empire. So it's not exactly tolerance for tolerance's sake but it is nonetheless a fascinating aspect of their culture. And for many of the peoples they conquer, where one religion was very much in charge and one religion or several religions weren't in charge and were subordinate to it, they then have to confront a life under Mongol rule where they're now on an equal footing.
2: Hmm. Now, we ask this question to all of our guest experts. At the end of the day... If you had to pick a person or thing, it could be a concept that you think is to blame for the brutality and and, and bloodshed uh, caused by the by uh, Chinggis Khan's reign. Who or what would that be?
3: Sure, um, I'm going to answer that a little bit in a slightly roundabout way, if I may, because I just want to make the point that um, the Mongol Empire is huge, absolutely huge. So we we talk about various conquerors from the medieval period people often talk about the crusaders being at least from a military perspective um, conquerors from this era or whatever but the crusaders conquests compared to the scale of the mongol empire are absolutely tiny the mongol empire is a vastly more effective machine of conquest than any agricultural society of this era this is a society this is a period where nomadic cultures are a great deal better suited to large-scale conquest. And <laughs> I am going somewhere with this. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, an argument that, it's not actually my argument, but I think it's right, What someone called Peter Jackson put forward, is that one of the key uh, factors in the Mongol Empire and its, and its violence is its scale. Lots of societies are brutal. Lots of societies in this era and any era sack cities or conduct devastating raids. What they don't have is the ability to conduct those campaigns on a continent-wide basis. And so it's the sheer scale of the Mongol conquests that lends itself to that brutality. It's not necessarily that the Mongols are more brutal. It is mm. just that there is so much more scope for that brutality.
2: Mm-hmm. That makes a lot of sense. Understanding that, what would you say is to blame?
3: (laughs) Yeah. um, Temujin, Chinggis Khan, it's always tempting to try and sort of understand the psychology of people like that. I'm not sure that we'll ever understand the psychology of someone who's truly unique for for, for whatever reason um, Temujin, Chinggis Khan may have been. But I think we can go this far reasonably safely. Here is someone who was born and raised in permanent fear for his life and that of his family, and who realised that the only, road, the only road to safety for him is permanent expansion. And so I think that this is someone who can perceive it's just ingrained in his reflexes. He has to expand. There is, nothing, there is no alternative course of action. The only route to safety is to be on top, to stay on top. And, but of course, the bigger you get you start uh, neighboring other huge civilizations. So you're gonna conquer them as well. And he just keeps going. Uh, and I, For me at least that makes a degree of sense when trying to understand what he's doing.
2: Yes. Thank you so much, Nick, for uh, your time and, and for helping us understand this, you know, very large uh, historical moment.
3: My pleasure. Thank you so much.
2: If you'd like to hear our post-interview discussion and final verdict, head over to Patreon and subscribe. Your support is greatly appreciated. Check out our show notes for a link or head over to Patreon.com slash The Alarmist. And stay tuned because next week we'll be discussing Did Video Kill the Radio Star? The Alarmist.
0: Without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom spray five and one. Only from Rustolium.
1: Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus,